0: You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Steph Tillup. On this week's episode, Beck Shrimpton speaks to Joanne Wallace and Anna Poles, the authors of a recent ASPI report detailing how Australia, New Zealand, and the United States can partner in and with the Pacific Islands to improve security partnerships and coordination in the region. They discuss the key recommendations from the report, including setting up an ASEAN style forum for Pacific Island nations, as well as the need for Pacific priorities to direct the actions that partners undertake in the region. They also discuss how the three nations have engaged with the Pacific up until now and explore opportunities to strengthen this engagement. Joanne Wallace and Anna Poles, welcome to the ASPE podcast. Thank
1: you.
2: Hi. You're here with us today. We're talking um, about specifically a recent report that has been published by ASPE. It's a really great piece of work and an enormously important contribution for policymakers. It's called Smooth Sailing, and it looks at how Australia, New Zealand and the United States partner in and with the Pacific Islands. And it makes a couple of key recommendations about how those three countries can, both on their own and together, do a better job of engaging the Pacific family, as Australia calls it, or the the Pacific Islands Community of Nations. This is important because we are seeing a, a different geopolitical environment overlay to engagement in the Pacific. And sometimes that means that the interests of these smaller states themselves can easily be trampled by those of larger players. There are more players who are actively seeing the Pacific as important to be engaged in and with, and they're very different players types of players. So to unpick that a little, I've got Joanne and Anna today. So we might start with perhaps the report and what your key recommendations are. And I believe, Anna, that there has been some news this week that the New Zealand government looks like it might be moving on one of those recommendations. So perhaps we start with with you and that, and then, and then Joanne, perhaps if you could jump in behind that and flesh out the, the why you've made these recommendations and why it's important.
3: Thanks, Beck. Look, it's certainly uh, about a week or so ago, a report came out that New Zealand Foreign Minister, Naya Mahuta, was thinking and, and talking about the strengthening of the Pacific Islands Forum, very much akin to ASEAN. And we've heard a lot of the language over the last year or so about, you know, Pacific Island Forum centrality, for instance. But as Joanne and I talk about in the report, we do have concerns about the way in which partners are engaging with the architecture or creating new architectures. So one of the recommendations we actually made was that, and to support the regional management of geopolitical challenges, that the Pacific Islands Forum should be strengthened uh, in the similar ways to the ASEAN Regional Forum. And this uh, recommendation was, was picked up by the New Zealand foreign minister recently. And that's certainly an initiative that we really strongly support because one of the concerns that, that many Pacific Island leaders have voiced over the last few years about strategic competition and how disruptive strategic competition is in the region is the need to have a, a forum in which Pacific leaders can seek to navigate and moderate and manage that competition uh, more and more definitively, and and that's something that we've certainly very strongly recommended in the report. Excellent,
2: Joanne. What were some of your other recommendations, and can you flesh out a little bit more the, the contours of your report and where it goes?
1: So our overriding theme for the report was really that Pacific priorities should direct what partners are doing in the region, including Australia and New Zealand and the United States, and be guided by what the Pacific has already told partners that its priorities are. We're very fortunate that in 2018 Pacific leaders agreed to the BOY declaration on regional security where they laid out very clearly what their regional security priorities are and how that they Want to address them going forward and noting that Australia and New Zealand are signatories to that declaration as members of the forum. More recently at the 2022 Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting leaders endorsed the 2050 strategy on the blue Pacific continent and again they have set out very clearly there the pathway that they want the region to pursue moving forward to 2050. So Pacific leaders have made it very easy for partners to identify what they're interested in and what their priorities are. And the onus is really on partners now to take seriously what the Pacific has told them and to be seen to be following that lead. And that really guides all our recommendations in our report, recommendations along the lines of including Pacific countries in existing mechanisms. We speak at length about the partners in the Blue Pacific Initiative, for example, that Australia, New Zealand, the US, the United Kingdom, Japan, and latterly a few more other partners have joined, ostensibly to help coordinate their assistance in the region. But as Anna and I point out in the report, it's notable that Pacific Island countries haven't been included as members of that mechanism. They have been consulted down the track, but they weren't there as the mechanism was being formed. At least they weren't there publicly and visibly, which, which does matter. So we make a number of recommendations along those lines. There's the Pacific Quad, which is the other quad. We know that the other quad, the quadrilateral arrangement between Australia, the US, Japan and India gets a lot of attention, but there has been a quad operating in the Pacific for many years to coordinate fishery surveillance and maritime domain awareness in the region. We say that there's more capacity for Pacific Island countries to be included as members of that, not as a region that it is done to, but as a region that it is done with. And the same with the France arrangement between Australia, France and New Zealand to coordinate humanitarian and disaster relief. Again, instead of being recipients of that arrangement, and you know that arrangement has been instigated multiple times in, in response to the escalating number of natural disasters that we're seeing in the region, but not as recipients, but as members of that arrangement as well. So really, it's about the overriding theme is really listening to the Pacific and including them as equal partners, not as recipients of of what these partners are doing
2: thank you it is it is really helpful when you think about engaging to have that clarity Um, and it is a great way for us to as as countries who are engaging Australia New Zealand in our in our two cases uh, it's a great way to measure our own performance if you like against our rhetoric and against what have been articulated as the region's own requirements. So something that is always, always very helpful. And I guess now we get to, uh, we're going to get to make those judgments and assessments on how we're all going. On that point, can I ask you to make a bit of a comment? Uh, really, in the in the report, you focus in on Australia, New Zealand, and the US, and there's a brief history of their engagement, uh, where it started, and and where it is now. Same, uh, same with China. Can I ask you to to, to gallop through? together or, or one at a time your assessments of how those nations have engaged individually in the implications for the Pacific up to now?
3: Thanks Beck. So in terms of in terms of the way in which Australia and, and New Zealand and the, and the United States have engaged in the Pacific, obviously very, very different for, for each of those three partners. And you know as Joanne mentioned, Australia and New Zealand are members of the Pacific Islands Forum rooted in the, in the region. And have the sort of the strategic narratives of both Australia and New Zealand are, are very clearly linked to stability and security uh, of the Pacific region itself. And so there is a a sense of with certainly with Australia and New Zealand of you know deeply invested, deeply ingrained in the region. But that in itself is not problematic either. And for a very long period the united states uh was less engaged in the pacific and there were uh, and certainly a sense that australia and new zealand were i don't want to use the word proxies but certainly were and i put in quotation marks sort of managing managing the region and and the us was 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 far less engaged now with the US re-engagement in the region that we've seen over the past, past certainly over the past year, although it, it very much echoes ambitions laid out in, in, in 2012 with the pivot to the Asia-Pacific, we've seen these, a significant increase in the three countries partnering together. Uh, but also, as we talk about in the report, uh, there are challenges in that as well, as both as Australia and New Zealand know too well that just you know, having, having a strong alliance does not necessarily mean that the way in which the two countries operate together in the Pacific is always in lockstep. And then you bring in a much larger partner like the United States that operates at scale, which you know, certainly for a country like New Zealand is, is challenging, to manage and and from a New Zealand perspective there is a sense of really wanting to try and manage and shape the way that the United States re-engages with the region as well and that's where we see a lot of the rhetoric around you know Pacific Island forum centrality and and so forth and to a, a large extent Australia is also seeking to to manage and shape and influence the way that the United States engages and what we've tried to do in the report is really reflect on the way that the three partners have engaged individually, but, really, but also collectively as well, and really draw attention to the fact that whilst there are certainly shared values and interests between the three partners, there are also challenges in the way in which they work together and the way in which potentially strategic objectives may actually undermine pacific priority. and australia and new zealand need to be particularly aware and cognizant because we're here in the region you know geography you know means that we're not going anywhere and there are certainly sort of you know quiet concerns about the consistency and credibility of the us as a partner long term in the region and this is what we very much you know we've tried to unpack this
2: there is a tendency to sometimes think that because we operate together so often, and we we do perceive ourselves as alike, that we think we engage uh, in very similar ways as well. So I think that's a really really important point that you've made there, Anna, about you know why there are some differences to approach. It's not just size, but it's a, it's a matter of geography. Now, Joanne, I might get you if if you may to to then talk to to China. China has of course been in and around the region also for for a while, but we've seen an increase certainly in, uh, in its focus and its level of activity in the Pacific. Can you talk a little bit to what we're seeing there with Chinese engagement in the Pacific?
1: Yeah, before I do, I just wanted to pick up quickly on something that Anna said. So just to pick up on a comment that Anna made about Pacific priorities, and it's also something that I emphasised in my opening remarks. I think people might listen to the podcast and and think to themselves, well, you know, we're Australia or we're New Zealand. Why should our priorities be secondary to what the Pacific is interested in? And this is something that I often get asked about my work. And I know I wouldn't speak for you, but um, it, it might be the same for you. And I think I won't want to speak for both of us, but from my perspective, I emphasize Pacific priorities because the geopolitical landscape has changed. And look, we should have always been taking Pacific priorities into account for, for myriad reasons. But if you wanna be hard-nosed and pragmatic about it, we need to more than ever take Pacific priorities into account now because Pacific states have made clear that they are very comfortable exercising their agency, that activism on the international stage across number of partners is now familiar territory for them. We can't afford, to not take their priorities in account if we want to keep a good relationship with Pacific states or if, if where our relationships are a bit cooler if we want to rebuild those relations. So I just wanted to add that to Anna's comments because I, I know that's something that listeners might be wondering and thinking, well, we're interested in Australia's national interest. Well, it is actually in Australia's national interest to take Pacific priorities seriously. And on in that regard, of course, we do come to China and, the deepening sense of strategic competition that you see in the Pacific and more broadly. As we talk about in our report, China is trying to operate outside the existing regional order founded on the Pacific Islands Forum. Anna has written a a fantastic article in The Guardian last year outlining what the proposed economic and security pact that China was proposing to the region last year would have meant for the region and for geopolitics more generally. So I won't repeat that, but there is a sense that that China was at that time trying to, to shift the regional order or create an alternative regional order more centred on its interests than on the established partners and their established relationship with the Pacific. And Pacific leaders made it very clear that that, that was not something that they were willing to engage in. Samoan Prime Minister Fiamme was, Led the charge to push back and say that no, that any regional agreement should be dealt with and negotiated in the within the auspices of the Pacific Islands Forum. But we are seeing China continue that kind of parallel behaviour. So we've seen this more recently play out with China attempting again to create a parallel structure with the creation of the China Pacific Island Countries Disaster Management Cooperation Mechanism, and also the China Pacific Island Countries Centre for. Dis- for disaster risk reduction cooperation. Again, these are parallel mechanisms operating outside the auspices of the Pacific Islands Forum. Again, possibly having consequences for the existing regional order. So one of our arguments in our report is that Australia, New Zealand and the United States need to be working with Pacific Island countries to bolster the centrality of the forum. And part of this, as we acknowledge in our report, is going to be opening the door for China to be part of those cooperative regional mechanisms. And we argue that China has made it fairly clear in these recent examples that I've just cited that it's not potentially open to walking through that door, but there's real value in being the partners who are showing that they are listening to the Pacific, which the Pacific leaders are telling us that they don't want competition, that they do want regional, the centrality of the forum and other existing regional architecture, there's a lot of value in being the partners that are, are supporting the Pacific in that endeavour. And that might involve swallowing <laughs> our, our pride or inviting China in. And that then it will become very clear if China refuses those invitations to engage and co- coordinate what China's stance is and where China stands on the, on the Pacific's priorities. Another mechanism that we propose in our report is to create a donor coordination mechanism within the forum. And as we mentioned, the Cairns Compact was signed many years ago to as an overriding agreement to help coordinate donor engagement in the region. Australia and New Zealand are signatories, as is the United States, but China has never signed onto the Cairns Compact. And for various reasons, the Cairns Compact has kind of slid from view in recent years, but there's real potential to re- energise that, and again, to say to China, if you are serious about Pacific priorities, sign on to this umbrella coordinating mechanism and show that you're coming to the region in good faith and wanting to coordinate and listen to Pacific priorities and put those first. I guess our overriding theme when it comes to China in our report is that there is real value in Australia, New Zealand and the US being seen to be the partners that are listening and that are opening the door to China. And leaving it to china to decide whether it's going to walk through that door or it's going to deliberately continue to keep creating or attempting to create parallel mechanisms
2: i'm really glad joanne that you brought that angle out because it's an it is an incredibly important one and and you may have some that that say to you yeah you know what what about our own interests and I understand that line of questioning as well, and I like the way this report very much does help illustrate why the Pacific's interests are indeed aligned with and very in common with our own. But that point that you make about being the partner that is not the one saying no—that is saying we, we, you know, we hear you. It's about consolidation, and and all partners should come together and make it a lot easier for the for the island nations as a group to to you know to work together and to realise their own. Ambitions, and it is a, a really wonderful, clear way to discern a bit of truth here. When you've got some functioning, operating institutions that we know are the preferences, in in the words of the islanders themselves, for for all players to work through, and yet you have an actor like China that continues to insist on establishing new and parallel and alternative mechanisms, even if they may come very well funded, the burden that that puts on. The uh, Pacific Island states themselves, and the fact that it just creates and, and contributes to that dynamic of competition, there's already something there. Uh, it's genuinely multilateral, and a and, uh, preference has been clearly articulated. So, thank you very much for for bringing that particular that particular point out. So, where to from here, ladies? We've talked about the Pacific Island Forum. And the the need to make that operate in a way that is more akin to to ASEAN. Actually, perhaps let's get into quickly why why isn't the PIF sort of ASEAN like now anyway? Can you just stress where that key difference would be, and why this would be a different
3: approach? Yeah, sure. Just if I could just sort of add on from Joanne's point though, with respect to the strengthening of a as one of our recommendations being a a donor coordination unit which strengthens and sort of revitalizes the the cairns compact as as we talk about in the report and one one of our concerns that we that we raise is that with the creation of new architecture uh, like the partners in the blue pacific initiative which regardless of the of the the motivations of why it was was created there is already a mechanism within the Pacific architecture, the Pacific uh, the Islands Forum Dialogue Partners mechanism, which is a mechanism at which both the United States and China sit as dialogue partners, which has really been neglected for, for a myriad of reasons, has really been neglected over the last few years. And the Forum Dialogue Partners meeting, which is held after the leaders meeting each year, was not held last year because there were concerns about strategic competition issues disrupting some very important discussions that had to be had to sign finalize the super agreement to bring the, the micronesian five members back into the fold but it will be held at the cook islands forum leaders meeting in in november this year and so there's the, the, this is the question the kind of the tension that Joanne and i really try to get through in the report is that Creating this this separate architecture, the partners in the Blue Pacific, when there is actually existing architecture where everyone is involved and which is led by the Pacific Island Forum members themselves, we need to be very careful about duplicating architecture, uh, and and through that duplication, creating blocks within the regional order. And this again, you know, Joanne. You know, Outlined the way in which China also is creating parallel structures, both in the security sector, in the HADAR space, and, and in other areas as well. So, in terms of why the the coming back to that question around ASEAN and and the strength of the region, there is certainly you know the ASEAN itself, as Joanne and I have talked about both in this report and elsewhere we've written. certainly come under criticisms itself for its ability to deal with, particularly around crisis management. But the Pacific Islands Forum actually has really strong regional security architecture and and really strong architecture, which supports resolving crisis management issues, as well as a myriad of other issues, and has demonstrated that success through a number of recent significant wins around maritime oceans governance, for instance, and of course, the advocacy and successes around climate. So there's there's a lot of um, successful initiatives that the, that the forum has spearheaded. But there are also concerns that with the region facing considerable pressures both post-COVID, so there's economic pressures, but also climate related pressures and concerns around leadership vacuums in the future, that this is an opportunity for Australia and New Zealand, particularly as forum members to support the forum secretariat and and the forum in, uh, more broadly to be able to develop some clear lines around, for instance, as we talk about in our report, some clear lines around the way in which uh, security dialogues and ge- geopolitical challenges are discussed within the forum itself. And this is where the ASEAN model could potentially be a really useful way of looking at that and adapting that to the Pacific regional context. Anna and
2: Joanne, we have seen a couple of interesting, I don't want to call them incidents, but but flare ups in the region, one around the Pacific Islands Forum meeting itself, where we we almost saw a a splintering or a temporary splintering of the Pacific Islands Forum nations into, into blocks. And we have also, of course, had the drama that flared around the bilateral agreement signed between the People's Republic of China and the Solomon Islands. Can I get your, your views, please, on, on how these were resolved and what some key lessons are that we should draw from how they were ultimately resolved or how things have progressed from there?
3: There's one, one lesson that I hope that partners have learned from the resolution through the SUVA agreement, subsequent agreement, which brought the Micronesian members back into the forum was the the importance of, I want to say Pacific-led diplomacy effectively to resolve these issues. And this was a case where both Australia and New Zealand needed to step back as forum members uh, and support and simply provide support to enabling the resolution of this issue, and this is you know, this, and this really reflected the importance of not overriding initiative by Pacific leaders to resolve regional issues. That and that that came through very very clearly with the resolution. This was not something that Australia or New Zealand could have resolved by any stretch. It was something that needed to be resolved through the leadership of key individuals, key Pacific leaders and their deep networks across the region. And that actually is something that we probably should have paid a lot more attention to when the region reacted and key leaders reacted to the signing of the uh, security agreement between Mm -hmm. Solomon Islands and China, was that there was this this rush to, you know, this dash to Honiara, people from Australia and New Zealand to the United States. But in actual fact, there was a lot of conversations taking place behind the scenes between pacific leaders uh, to try and get some clarity around this and we really need to have a far better understanding of the way that pacific diplomacy and pacific statecraft actually can resolve these issues in a way that's you know invariably favorable to australia and new zealand as, as foreign members but we we tend to ignore
1: just building off what anna was saying there And perhaps a slightly pessimistic note to to end on is the role of bilateral security agreements in what we have discussed in our report and in regionalism more generally moving forward. I think people are still figuring out how to respond to the Papua New Guinea United States security agreement. And look, Australia has been active in pursuing its own bilateral security agreements too. On one level, They are positive if they meet the needs of the Pacific Island country in question, and if they are narrowly focused on, say, improving fisheries surveillance or humanitarian and disaster relief. But I am concerned moving forward if there is a proliferation of bilateral security agreements and perhaps a perception of competition to be the security agreement partner of choice, as we are seeing slightly play out at the moment in Papua New Guinea as Australia now has to wait for its own agreement if that ever comes to fruition. So that is my small note of caution moving forward is Anna and I in our report really emphasised the importance of multilateralism and a regional approach. And I am concerned what these bilateral security agreements may mean moving forward a
2: really important conversation the pacific is we are of and in the pacific both australia and new zealand the us is showing some willingness to to listen and learn and of course you know there are there are other external players that can play a really constructive role but it is all about doing this in the right way for the pacific front and center so look thank you for talking about that today Please do have a look at this report. It's a a really important, really well-argued conversation. It does consider some of those other external actors that are also uh, appearing and have an important role to play in and with uh, the Pacific. Thank you both for joining me today. I look forward to having another conversation, uh, the Pacific being such an important policy priority for both of our countries. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Recently, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace released the Indian Ocean Strategic Map, which provides a coherent data-driven understanding of the players' security challenges and other factors that shape the region. Barney Grewell joins Dashana Barua, a fellow with the South Asia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace to discuss the importance of the project.
4: Welcome to Dasby Podcast, Dashana. And welcome back to Canberra. How long has it been since you were last year? Thank you, Bonnie. Wonderful to be back. This is my first visit since COVID, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to jump right into it. Um, you recently launched your latest project, the Indian Ocean Strategic Map. And it's, to me, a fascinating resource for those of us who look at the Indian Ocean region, um, not just in terms of military, but also trade, you know, diplomatic partnerships. And what does that mean? For our listeners, what are the top three takeaways that they should take away from this new project?
5: Thank you, thank you, Bunny. It's been a Herculean task to get this project uh, to the end stage, and really, the aim was to create a coherent database and understanding of the Indian Ocean region in its in its entirety. And just to quickly say, there are about eleven interactive maps uh, looking at trade and military and energy shipping, diplomatic presence, multilateral geography, etc. And I hope listeners here would be would have a chance to go explore that map, which is online on the Carnegie website. The three takeaways for me working on this project, but also borrowing from my larger research on the Indian Ocean, which has influenced this project, of course, is uh, the growing need to view maritime domain through maritime approaches in the sense for too long, I think we have looked at, Maritime domains are maritime security through um, continental divisions and silos. For instance, Indian Ocean is divided into the silo of South Asia, Africa and Middle East. And somewhere in the continental focus of the Indian Ocean, the maritime domain disappears into the periphery of strategic and geopolitical conversations. So our effort is to provide that understanding of what is happening in the maritime domain if and when we look at the region as one continuous theatre and also to urge policymakers and researchers interested or students interested in that in the Indian Ocean and even in maritime security of reframing our own mental maps as well as reframing the conversations around Indian Ocean to, to reflect the developments in the maritime domain. So the argument that we make is that the study of a maritime domain requires a maritime approach. So we look at it as one continuous theatre, looking at all choke points and the straits uh, from the eastern coast of Africa and Red Sea to the Indonesian Straits and the western shores of Australia. And a second point, which flows from the first one, which is the study of the Indian Ocean as one continuous theatre, has allowed us to identify players, new players in the region who you traditionally don't hear in Indian Ocean conversations, I think, Of course, we're very used to the role of India and Australia and France and US and UK uh, and Japan from a development partner point of view is uh, well known and I think to an extent studied and what these actors have been doing. But our map, because um, of the way we have been able to map it in its entirety, has also helped us identify the role of emerging players, which of course is China, but as well as Turkey United Arab Emirates, UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, and I think it is this maritime approach and a coherent and comprehensive look at the Indian Ocean has allowed us to identify what other players are doing, where are they emerging in different subregions, and how is that uh, changing the dynamics and shifting the trends in the Indian Ocean region. Um, so that is the second one. That what are the missing dots that have emerged? Or what are the missing dots that have helped that help us better understand the Indian Ocean? If you we were to look at the region, in the way we are meant to geographically, which is as one continuous ocean, and the third point I would make, and you know, so one thing I would say is this: this project is not about one or two players. It's not about US and China. It's not about India and China. It's not about one or two or three or four players. It's about the region writ large. It's about the Indian Ocean as one theater and the many different players and the institutions and geographies that exist within this rim and its implications for the larger Indo-Pacific. But having said that, the third Point that I would raise and it's because you know, being from a think tank, we are part of a lot of geopolitical conversations and, and this has been the most fascinating part for me is uh, the China conversation in the Indian Ocean region. So there in the last couple of years we've heard a lot in terms of China's the new player in the Indian Ocean and what is China doing in the Indian Ocean region. So our data essentially looks at diplomatic missions and trade and military. So to provide a preview of it, there are 33 nations that Are within the Indian Ocean Rim. China is the only country with a diplomatic mission with an embassy in each of the 33 nations. So, is it really a new player? Because obviously, the missions have not come up in the last five years. It's come up over a period of 20 years, at the very least. Some go back to the 70s and 80s, and a concerted effort to look at the region and be present across the region. In terms of trade as well, China is clearly key player and an important trade partner for many Indian ocean region except for Seychelles China emerges as within the top 5 trading partners for all other Indian ocean region countries so 32 for 32 countries China is the top trading partner. And I think that speaks volume in terms of the choices and the impact it would have. So really the conversation between traditional versus emerging. And we have a report associated with it and it'll show you that the trade between China and the Indian Ocean countries and the trade collectively with all of the traditional players and the mismatch within it. So if you say you're interested, if you say you are present, if you say you are there, how much of it is reflecting in the data and I think China is doing perhaps has a more active presence than the others, which also goes to talk about sort of China's role in the Indian Ocean region, where the region does not necessarily look at China as a problematic actor. China has no sovereignty disputes in the Indian Ocean region. China has no political baggage in the Indian Ocean region unlike in the in the south china sea and it is pretty cons- it has been pretty consistent with diplomatic presence high level visits but more so with its trade so it has something concrete to show for it so i think the whole conversation that we hear is very much defined by the larger players but if you were to take a regional perspective i think china very quickly emerges as an accepted and welcome player just on your last
4: point and thank you for that excellent overview and i think A, the point that you looked at all 33 countries, you know, as part of the RIM and not just the major players or some of the island nations, I think is A, one of the most important points for me. But just on that last point, in your previous work, you've also looked at how island nations, you know, are dealing with this new strategic era of the Indo-Pacific and what that means for them. Sitting here in Canberra, obviously, our focus is on the Pacific island nations and Solomon Islands and what's happening there. But You have linked the Indian Ocean Islands and the Pacific Islands before. So if I'm sitting in Sri Lanka or if I'm in Solomon Islands, how do you see that as being interconnected? And the second part of that question is, again, you know, if I am in Seychelles or if I'm in Sri Lanka and China is, you know, an important partner for me, what does that look like in practice?
5: Yeah, um, so I think one of the things that we have tried to do is, um, and this is one of the core research areas for me, is to look at how, small islands uh, shape geopolitical competition in the 21st century taking from the taking from the research of my previous years is to say that the entire because the agency of island nations today has that power to shape that competition in the sense I mean let's take a look at US missed sending high-level delegations to the Pacific for almost 40 years and Solomon Islands signs an agreement with with China and within two weeks you have the high you know you have high-level delegations White House officials going to the region so you have scrambled your resources to redirect it to the Pacific so that was an agency of Solomon Islands that its actions warranted a reaction out of the United States that broke a sort of trend in their own outreach to the pacific just to actually show up uh so so how does that agency now that these you know island nations on maritime security and naval strategy have always been important because they because of the geography but today they are not bases they are not outposts they are not platforms for military or naval competition by bigger powers they are sovereign nations of their own with a voice at the UN they're voting members at the UN they debate and discuss policies and treaties and they have the agency to work with whoever they like and th- what is that impact going to have and i think the problem or or the challenge in i don't think so uh, the developments in sri lanka or solomon islands were were isolated or were sort of you know coincidences i think the reason a lot of policymakers did not make that connection is because you study most government bureaucracies probably study solomon islands under the bureau of oceania and sri lanka under the bureau of south asia i don't believe south asia and oceania discuss and come to the table as much because what is the connection between oceania and south asia sort of you know because when you say south asia there's a, the continental issues of south asia dominate or take precedence over maritime issues. Whereas for Oceania, maritime will be important, but then, you know, on a different set of maritime issues. So I think dividing islands up in different bureaus and not having a maritime outlook and leaving that maritime outlook only to the navies have had an impact in the geopolitical conversations where we have missed the dots and the connecting lines within it. And I think I think that is that is why... It feels like, oh, China's coming out of nowhere and is like aggressively pursuing these agreements with island nations. But if you were to look at the developments in maritime domain in the last twenty years or so, I think these would be pretty obvious developments that government should have seen coming and rectified it before instead of having a reactionary policy to it. And as I said, in the Indian Ocean region, so for instance, they went sh- in Sri Lanka, when when Indian Prime Minister Modi went to Sri Lanka in 2015, if I'm not wrong, it was almost the first time in 28 years that an Indian, you know, leader, political leader of at that level had visited the island, simulating on the Pacific. So I think islands have that approach where for a long time, their traditional partners were missing and you had an alternative in, in China and now their traditional partners have identified China as a threat and you're caught in this sort of crossroads, but also the agency and how they maneuver that. Yeah,
4: that's fascinating. And I mean, to me, there's a clear line between sort of what happens in the Maldives and what happens in the Pacific and what happens, you know, in Seychelles. But to actually translate that into policymaking and how governments think about it is, I guess, another challenge. <laughs> Just on Southeast Asia now. We don't necessarily always think about Southeast Asia as, you know, an Indian Ocean issue. Like you said, you know, we've divided it into continental silos. How are new partnerships like the Quad and how, you know, Southeast Asia responds to it and how it reacts to it? How, how do you see that playing out in the Indian Ocean, whether that has an impact and specifically things like the Maritime Drain Awareness Initiative?
5: I think maritime domain awareness is an area that is important to almost every nation with a coast and particularly for island nations. And the map, sort of our map will also show the vast exclusive economic zones that islands uh, possess. And these and maritime domain awareness essentially provides you the information and the awareness to know what is happening around your waters and then formulate policies and tools and resource and capacity to address those issues, whether it's uh, maritime crimes, drug trafficking, uh, human smuggling, but also oil spills and pollutions and plastics and cruise ships running aground. You know you have to be able to have eyes and to see what's happening in there. So there is a lot of interest and welcome collaboration on maritime domain awareness, but I think it has to be on issues that are important to um, the region and island nations. Now, maritime domain awareness cover covers both. Military and strategic aspects, as well as sort of collaborative or non—what is referred as non-traditional security issues, which is what I mentioned in maritime crimes, or even climate and and other aspects. So, Quad's ability to deliver on these issues to the region when when Quad talks about regional maritime domain awareness will be key in it because there is a space and there's scope for it. But I think where countries are skeptical is, at what point does it become sort of a tool to utilize these regional initiatives for its own strategic competition with China. And again, countries are caught in difficult position between the military partnerships with a lot of the traditional players and the economic partnership with the emerging players. And and I think it, it'll be Im- important in the sense that Quad is very welcome today. I think at least I've, I've just in Southeast Asia in Singapore, Uh, last month and i think there is a changing narrative on quad that quad is welcome till the time it provides on regional issues and i think that's where quad's strength today lies also in utilizing its resources and tools and maritime domain awareness to provide that a picture to the country so yeah and in terms of emerging players so you will classify china
4: uae turkey
5: saudi arabia saudi arabia yeah And and traditional russia
4: And Russia, okay. And traditional players, uh, US, UK, India,
5: France. Australia
4: Australia, and Japan. I forgot in Australia. Australia and
5: Japan, because Japan's a key development partner.
4: Well, that's a great, I think, transition to my last question is, what does this mean for Australia? What does it mean for a policymaker sitting in Canberra? What do you want to say to them in terms of how in Australia we view the Indian Ocean region? Of course, we also look at it we divide it. So we might not necessarily look at the Western Indian Ocean or East Africa. Uh, we might just look at North, Northeast Indian Ocean or again, look at it from a South
5: Asian perspective. I think it's absolutely fine if Australia wants to prioritize a specific sub-region of the Indian Ocean region because geography always defines perceptions and priorities in the in in the area but i think there's still a need to understand the region on its own before you can arrive on that policy on whether that's right or not you know eastern indian ocean and northeast indian ocean is a priority also a lot for straits of malacca and sort of the geography part of it but there are connecting dots between the st- choke points in the western indian ocean and the middle east so strait of hormuz and bab mandeb and its implications on straits of malacca if you don't have secure straits of, strait of hormuz and uh, bab el mandeb then there is not that much energy or oil to be transited through the Straits of Malacca. Plus, anything that happens around those straits has a direct impact on not just Australia's trade with Northeast Indian Ocean, but with uh, Middle East, with Africa and Europe. There, That is the route, right? So if Canberra wants to have an understanding of, okay, what its maritime security, maritime policy should be, and then it can prioritize that, okay, within the Indian Ocean, Northeast Indian Ocean is our priority, which would be fair and square. But I think there's still a need to understand the developments of the Indian Ocean as one coherent region. It will also have an impact on Australia's partnerships, like say with India, who looks at the entire ocean as one. And also in terms of the quad where the blind spot is in the Western Indian Ocean, just because countries are not looking at that region or the players doesn't mean that there are no activities or developments happening. So I think the awareness, the maritime domain awareness needs to extend to the policymakers and to the bureaus and then coming up with a policy which is not a remnant of something that was decided in the 80s and 90s, but to reframe it in the 21st century. So I would say that, that have the prioritized North Indian Ocean if it makes sense for Canberra. But I think there's still a need to look at and understand the entire Indian Ocean on what is happening. But... I think there are some movements we can see on this, and um, I should say that we had uh, this project was supported by DFAT, so so maybe uh, this is a starting point. But I think Indian Ocean conversation is also important for Indo-Pacific conversation, and it is as much a Canberra conversation as much as it is in Perth.
4: Yeah, and I think we forget that Australia is also an Indian Ocean
5: and has the largest oh. exclusive economic zone, has territories in the Indian Ocean region, has the largest search and rescue zones, and Australian iron ore is one of the top most traded commodity in the Indian Ocean region. And that includes the entire Indian Ocean.
4: Thank you, Darshan. And I encourage our listeners to go and, you know, use the map.
0: As you said, it's a research tool.
4: Yeah. Thank you for being at ASPI.
0: Thank you so much. It was wonderful to see you again. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.